Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother. Baby, baby. Welcome, everybody, to the B-side of my interview with Adam Hilton. We talked about the Democratic Party and the left. So before I bring you that part two of the interview to my beautiful patrons out there, I wanted to do a quick election rundown. As many of you will know, last week there was an election in the United States uh, where many progressives and even open socialists were swept into local and state Offices. It's a very exciting development. Most people have read this as a rejection of Trumpism. And I think, you know, there's a lot of truth to that. But the, the real story here is that there was a whole slew of inspired and openly progressive and openly socialist candidates that brought the vote out at the local level. And so because, you know, Ralph Northam famously now that folks know about won the Virginia gubernatorial race. As a wet blanket mainstream Democrat, he, he swept he was swept in the office by a nine point election victory. Nobody saw that coming. Well, why did that happen? Well, it was because you had inspired candidates like Lee Carter running in Northern Virginia. Lee Carter is a Democratic Socialist of America uh, member. He is an open socialist himself. He ran as one. He's a, a, a military vet. He's a ginger, by the way. Just goes to show that you know, hey, people will vote for gingers. You know, uh, shocker. I think that's the biggest surprise here. That's the biggest story. Uh, but anyway, yeah, he won. And uh, Dana Kareem, who is a transgender woman, beat the uh, GOP's House Majority or De House of Delegates Majority Whip which is a big story. He was a troglodyte, misgendered her throughout the entire campaign. So across the country, many open socialists and progressives, people who were endorsed by DSA, they're DSA members, they were endorsed by Bernie Sanders' uh, Our Revolution organization, they were swept into power. And it's a really exciting turn of events. I could go uh, race by race, but I don't want to bore you. Uh, it's all out there in the news and the podcast circuit by now. But I think people are wrongly interpreting this as solely a response to Trumpism. I think that what we've seen now is that there is a degree of flexibility inside the Democratic Party that enables progressives and open socialists to run on the ticket in order to advance socialist and progressive politics for the masses. Because there's no better way to reach the masses than through elections. These are state-sanctioned, you know, regular, they, they, they happen at regular intervals. And yeah, I mean, I think it's fantastic that socialists and progressives are using this as an opportunity to build the left. As Adam Hilton will say very soon in the interview, the Democratic Party should be seen as a tool to be used by an independent and active left to build our side, right? That, that's how we build our side. We use the Democratic Party as a tool for our own advancement. Uh, it's not the case that the Democratic Party is going to do that by itself. We need an independent and active left to work in and through and around, if necessary, the Democratic Party to build our own 
institutions and organizations eventually. But right now, given the lack of those institutions and organizations, and certainly given the lack of a principled, you know, socialist or labor party in the United States, this is the this is the game that we have to play. And I got to say, the people who ran this past week and their their campaigners, their canvassers, the people who picked up the phones and called people over the past couple of months, they did that beautifully. And so this is a really great lesson. That being said, I would not be the dead pundit if I did not raise the contradictions that this is going to bring about. What does it mean, for example, to have Larry Krasner, a self-described completely unelectable defense attorney, as the head of the criminal justice system in the racist city of Philadelphia? What does it mean to have an open socialist sitting on the uh, you know, Virginia State House of Delegates? How do, you, how do you serve at the helm of the capitalist state when you yourself are a member of the radical left. And I mean, these are good problems to have, right? These are good problems to have. It's like, oh God, what am I gonna do with this million dollars? Ah, it's so stressful. It's like, well, fuck you, you've got a million dollars. That's a good problem to have, right? (laughs) But uh, nonetheless, these are problems. And the left needs to, to build its capacities, its intellectual capacities, its knowledge of history, its knowledge of the capitalist state and political economy. And we all need to do this together so that we can, you know, we can we can deal with these problems and pitfalls as they arise in a really intelligent way. It would be too easy to a year or two or three or four from now to look at some of these candidates and the kind of compromises that they had to make while in office and just call them sellouts and disown them and say, see, I knew all along that you weren't a real socialist or you're a sellout or whatever. That would be too easy. Now, whether they're sellouts or not is a separate question. But what we do know is that they are going to face tremendous difficulties while in office as socialists and progressives and uh, we on the left need to build our capacities to see the field of struggle in the capitalist state so that we can help bring about these policies and uh, some kind of socialist transformation folks i know we're, we're that seems like light years away but uh that's what i'm trying to do here on the dead pundit society i think that's why you folks are my patrons uh, you you see that and you appreciate that and you you you, you enjoy hearing my guests talk about those sort of like big picture, long-term strategic demands. And Adam Hilton is going to do much more of that as he breaks down the character of the Democratic Party as this sort of amorphous institution. So I'll shut up. Thank you so much, folks, for listening to this. I presume because you're my patrons, you're not completely sick of the sound of my voice. I know I am. Uh, But thanks for listening. And uh, here is part two of my interview with Adam Hilton. Enjoy. Welcome, patrons, to the B-side of this week's episode. As a reminder, joining me is Adam Hilton. Uh, We had a really great chat about the nature of the Democratic Party, how it is and is not an institution, And uh, we talked about the history of the coalition that comprised it from the New Deal through to the post-World War II era, the Dixiecrat uh, debacle. 
and into the 1968 uh, convention riot, you might say, Mm -hmm. and the new politics movement. So, Adam, take us through the 1972 era and uh, what what, what the implications are on the shifts in the party that occurred uh, that that brings us uh, the, the more contemporary structure of, uh, you know, the electoral system that the DN, the Democratic Party currently uh, operates under. Yeah, sure. I mean, in the aftermath of uh, the 1968 catastrophe, as we we're saying in, uh, on the A side, the, the balance of forces uh, certainly favored the reformers uh, and the reform activists for a brief period. They were able to make major structural changes to ha- how the presidential nomination procedures operated. Uh, They were able to create uh, many new uh, opportunities for grassroots activists to participate in that. The number of participants in the selection of the uh, presidential nominee uh, more than doubled uh, between 1968 and 1972. Um, And the demographic composition of the conventions, uh, the actual delegates at the convention who do the nominating, from 1968 to 1972 basically fully transformed from a white male uh, middle-class, middle-age, at least middle-age kind of affair to one that much more, that, that reflected uh, much more accurately the uh, demographic composition of the United States, both in terms of race, gender, age, and class. So I want to get into that just really briefly. A lot of people on the left in particular, when we tell our stories about the realignment attempt and to go inside the Democratic Party and shift it in a, in a leftward. Of course, that's always framed as a failure because as you're about to lay out, well, it was in some senses a failure. But there were key advances there, right? Like as you mentioned, the composition of the folks who participated in those party structures far more greatly represented the composition of society at large, the new political or the new social movements rather sort of flooded into those structures. And as well, like the Dixiecrats were kicked out of the party. I mean, that, that was what enabled it in part, I would say. Um, w- would you agree with that? The, the, the Dixiecrats exit from the Democratic Party apparatus, you know, how, however loose it might have been at that time, uh, really s- enabled the diversification of, of the Democratic Party. Well, absolutely, because, I mean, you get uh, many of the uh, African-American delegates are now coming in the southern delegations, which had previously been um, segregated and or that is to say, lily white uh, delegations, uh, because those parties, as we mentioned on the A side, were undemocratic, authoritarian kind of party states in, in that region. But after I mean, with the help of the uh, 1964-65 uh, Civil Rights and Voting Rights Acts, plus uh, efforts at desegregation, plus the reforms, the party reforms that come from the uh, new politics activists, those states are democratized from internal uh, African-American insurgencies, but as well as from the top down through the reformers acting through the national party. Okay, so take us through the ni- uh, 1972. Uh, b- <laughs> take us through 1972 to present. Just give us 40 years of history, you know, in the next 30 seconds. <laughs> Just to be clear with folks, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we're going to do a whole separate episode on the rise of the third way, talking about Clinton, the folks, uh, you know, who emulate- emulated Clinton in many ways, Tony Blair, who's known for third wayism. Uh, and, and so on. So we're going to have a whole episode on that formation. So, so give us a quick little uh, gloss on that transformation and what it means for our contemporary moment. Sure. Well, uh, the high point 
for the new politics movement uh, after it's reformed the party is, of course, uh, the 1972 nomination of uh, uh, South Dakota Senator George McGovern, uh, who had been a prominent and vocal critic of the uh, Vietnam War from within the Senate, had uh, take had stepped in to to kind of uh, hold the uh, Robert Kennedy's convention delegates in '68 after Kennedy's uh, murder, and was himself uh, the lead uh, chairperson for the Reform Commission uh, that that uh, assembled after the 1968 catastrophe. Uh, so McGovern was un, was undeniably associated, though not quite a leader of the new politics movement. And with all those new convention delegates being selected through open and uh, new nomination processes uh, in 72, uh, McGovern uh, narrowly but successfully uh, wins the uh, the nomination and goes on to face uh, Richard Nixon in November. Now mm-hmm. McGovern goes down to a historic landslide defeat, losing every single state except the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and the District of Columbia. And there are many possible reasons that we could go through as to exactly why that happened. But what's most important for the narrative that we're constructing here is that whereas after 1968, members of the Democratic Party that had very little sympathy with the reform project also had very little grounds on which to object to the demands for reform. After all, it had just been revealed that the Democratic Party basically had no formal process governing its nomination procedures. So you could pitch the reform project as just simple, straightforward modernization, right? And who could object to that? The outcome of the 1972 election gives the anti-reformers the rationale they need to push back against the reform project, to push back against the new politics movement, because now they can say, yep, yep. these reforms lead to defeat. They don't work. They don't We're work. in the business of winning elections, people. We're pragmatic. We are the people who get things done. Yeah. Right? And 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 uh, importantly, they can point to things like that. Actually, Nixon's reelection had almost no coattails effect. Uh, mm-hmm. He did not carry Republicans into the Senate or the House with him. Uh, Democrats did did fairly well uh, below the presidential level. So all the more so they could say the reforms to the presidential nominating system have produced a extremist candidate who is obviously out of touch or out of sync with the median voter or, you know, where American voters really are. So many people who uh, had opposed reform on procedural grounds and especially many people who objected to McGovern's uh, willingness to entertain revising the Cold War commitments that the Democratic Party leadership had been committed to since uh, the end of the Second World War. They form an organization called the Coalition for a Democratic Majority, and they set out over the ensuing 10 years or so, progressively whittling away at the reforms that had been made between 68 and 72, never fully turning the clock back to the status quo ante. They cannot go back to the pre-68 form of of nomination, but they dilute the affirmative action commitments. Uh, They scrap the much larger designs that had been uh, in the works for creating more mass membership forms of organization. They had the midterm policy councils. They had regional organizations. They, They had really an aggressive and ambitious plan on how to transform the party, the Coalition for a Democratic Majority is partly responsible for scrapping all of that. 
However, uh, over time, most of those cold warriors end up finding that they're not really able to restore the New Deal coalition uh, that they so romanticize. Uh, the South is increasingly gravitating towards the Republican Party and the Republican Party, especially uh, under after after Reagan's near successful insurgency in uh, 1974 and then his victory in 1980. Um, many of these members of the Coalition for a Democratic Majority end up finding a new home in, in a, a neoconservative project uh, on the other side of the aisle. And so this leaves the new politics movement defeated and demoralized inside the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. and basically creates the space for uh, what will become known as the New Democrats, the Clintonian uh, wing, uh, to come in and sort of harvest the fruits. Right. So let's, let's, let's just gloss over the third way New Democrats uh, sort of uh, moment, or maybe you can just sort of set the stage for our contemporary era. Because what I want to do now is I want to start drawing out the similarities and the differences between our contemporary moment and between the new politics era. Uh, Because as I mentioned at the close of the B-side, these are uh, really the stakes of the debates around the Democratic Party. Uh, Spoiler alert, neither you nor I believe that the Democratic Party is an unproblematic unproblematic vessel of socialist transformation. On the contrary. (laughs) Oh, contraire. Uh, You know, perhaps we should have made that more clear in the interview on the A side, and I will certainly make that clear in the intro so that folks don't get it twisted. Uh, so our argument here, my argument certainly, you can speak for yourself in a, far more authoritatively than me, but my argument is not to say that actually, uh, I don't know, maybe the realignment strategy is something we should look at today. No, but, 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 but it's important to get the history right and the specificity of the moment right, uh, because only then can we really move in, uh, in a strategic direction, I think. So... You talk about the way in which the post-1972 Democratic Party forces, the, the moderates, the hegemonic uh, you know, forces inside the Democratic Party, returned to a more kind of pragmatic orientation to winning elections. And they tried to sort of cohere this romanticized coalition that came out of the New Deal. What, what, where do you think the parallels are for the Clintonian wing of the Democratic Party in trying to just appeal to the same old forces inside the American body politic. I mean, are those forces, at least it would appear to me, are no longer there in the same way that they were in the Clinton and Obama years. Um, So they're really at an impasse. What do you make of this impasse? Yeah, it's... um, There there are some remarkable similarities... um, uh, there, at least in terms of of the rhetoric about, you know, that the Sanders wing of the party and it, its its aggressiveness in in pushing what you and I might call a social democratic platform, for most commentators, especially democratic elites, would just call it, you know, maybe liberal or an ultra liberal kind of platform. Um, you, there's some similarity there that they're worried, or or at least they conjure up the specter of McGovernism. In the sense that the lesson they try and take from that, or try and or try and extract and promote from 1972, is that if the Democratic Party gives into its left wing, lets the left wing dominate, then it will stray from where the mainstream voters are, and it will lose elections and lose catastrophically. 
right? And and this is right, a right. this is a sort of disciplinary force to apply on the party because you know whether you are some you know beltway hack or uh, you are a committed you know Sanders supporter, left social democrat or socialist or something like that, no one wants to lose. Right, right. The right. threat of losing, especially to losing to uh, the kind of party that wins when the Democrats lose, that has a powerful disciplinary effect on all players, whether you are, uh, whether you are a pragmatist in principle or whether you're a principled person who nevertheless still has to recognize that you have to be pragmatic sometimes. Right. It, it, a loss would be catastrophic. I mean, Leo Panitch was on the show a couple of weeks ago, and it might not be popular to say this, but he always raises the specter, the possibility that had Sanders won the nomination but then lost the general election, it would have set back the socialist movement a generation. And I think that's probably true. Uh, that's probably true. And, I'm, you know, whatever, who knows? What Bernie would have won. Bernie wouldn't have won. Who cares, right? All jokes aside. But, like, but there's, I think what you're saying is very true. Uh, losing elections can be catastrophic and be crippling uh, to the development of certain political tendencies. Yeah. And, and, I mean, I think it would have been much more likely uh, had that happened, that scenario that, that you drew out, then we would see a post-1972 kind of way of 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 the neoliberal centrists having the perfect rationale mm. handed to them as to why the Bernie wing should be totally ignored, right? And, right. and marginalized through every effort they possibly could. Um, plus the fact that the Bernie wing would be so demoralized by that loss, they would probably... I mean, they would probably not put up as much of a fight. Oh, that's true. Yeah, um, they wouldn't be uh, emboldened in the way that they had been, you know, in the past uh, yeah. year or so. I mean, it's it's weird to say, it, but in some ways, Hillary Clinton winning the nomination and then losing the election was probably the best possible scenario that could have happened for those in the party who are trying to argue that the party should reconceive of itself and move in a different direction. Right. I mean, I think you're absolutely correct. And you can say that in a way that has nothing to do with like the vulgar accelerationist argument. Right. No, no, like, of course well, not. Like we, we don't have to we don't have to say that meaning like, well, yes, it's good. And we wanted that and we should have pushed for that because no, that's not what we're saying. But we're just sort of saying like, you know, in order, in order to widen these contradictions in, in a way. Uh, yeah, I mean, of course, then again, I'm sounding like a, f a freaking accelerationist. So forget I said that. But my point is we're not accelerationists, people. Yeah, this, is, this <laughs> isn't about heightening the contradictions. This is yeah. this is just simply to point out had Clinton won, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the uh, national party apparatus would be fully subordinated to the White House. Mm -hmm. um, uh, whatever's going on in um, uh, in terms of thinking about revising the rules around superdelegates, which, which is something that's going on. Uh, sort of under the radar right now, all of that would probably be totally scotched. Um, right, right. Uh, the the Sanders insurgency would have been a blip, and and they would have just soldiered on for the next four to eight years. And I think that would probably have taken a lot of the momentum out of the right, uh, right, Sanders right. Uh, movement, if you want to call it that. So so what you're getting at, I mean, really, this gets at the, the nature of what the Democratic Party even is, right? So as you write. Uh, you know, and you've stated over and over again uh, on the A side in important ways, the Democratic Party, when there's a Democrat in it, it's sitting in the presidency, 
I mean, it really, it, it, it's, it is the presidency, yeah. right? There is no institution, you know, that's, that stands outside that has a mass base that's represented, uh, you know, through its mass base. No, like it is an arm, an explicit wing of the, the presidency. And so to, to envision that had Hillary Clinton won the, uh, you know, the, pre- the election, that there would be this institution for the Bernie Kratz to work within. It's just, it's, it's illusory. Yeah. I mean, it, it fundamentally misrepresents what the Democratic Party is and what political parties do in, I mean, that's why the Republican Party is in such a, such an up, you know, uh, uh, I don't know. I mean, whatever they're doing over there. I mean, because Trump is, is technically the head of the Republican Party right now. And so there's no space for the Republicans to operate inside the GOP in, a, in an independent way to sort of, you know, oppose him through through official uh, party channels. And it would have been exactly the same way had Clinton won the election. I think it's really important that we wrap our heads around that. Yeah. Yeah. And and uh, I mean, I think another thing that we could maybe draw in in par- or a lesson that maybe we could extract from uh, from the experience of the new politics for all that they achieved and and the, the laudable reforms that I think they made to the party that that did in a meaningful sense democratize it, though the quality and how far reaching that internal party democracy really is, um, is, is always worth questioning and, 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 uh, and noting. But I, I think this is also a period where, where a lesson we can understand is that the Democratic Party, because it's not an organization you can really grab onto, because it's not something you can actually really colonize, that you don't get much resources, you don't get much uh, infrastructure from trying to take it over, mm-hmm. um, but is so porous, is so vulnerable uh, to, to insurgencies of various kinds that this is, I mean, my, my ultimate thesis on this, I think, is that um, I think while a strong independent left could use the Democratic Party for the only thing parties are really good for in the United States, which is to translate votes into seats in office. Hmm. Um, Not build the powers of the working class, not collectively organize workers in their communities and their workplaces, right? Parties don't do that in the United States. They don't have the organizational capacities to do that. And rather than trying to transform them into things that could do that, which arguably is, is, is part of uh, or would have been uh, a part of uh, the new politics project, then I think I think instead we should rethink what the left can accomplish from party politics. Uh, a strong left, I think, could use the Democratic Party, but you can't use the Democratic Party to build the left. That's a really that's that that's great. I like that. Uh, yeah. Say that one more time for the folks, just for emphasis. Okay. I, I, I think it is conceivable, yes. given the kind of organize, organization that it is, that uh, a strong left, a strong independent left could use the Democratic Party to turn votes into seats in office, but you cannot use the Democratic Party to build that left. 
Well, there we go. Thanks so much, Adam, for being on the show. Uh, <laughs> that was a mic drop, I do believe. We could end there. Uh, but uh, we'll, I maybe we'll should have said on. that first uh, on the A side. You but. know, the thing about the long form interview, we were talking about this off air. People, you know, it's funny because it's funny. The criticism that I get, it's like, well, you guys just don't understand how this works, do you? They say, hey, Adam t- Adam's really long winded. These, uh, these episodes go too long. Uh, they really talk too much. And it's kind of like, listen, people. Uh, we don't pull this stuff, you know, out of thin air. Like it takes time to develop these these uh, pithy, uh, you know, statements. It's uh, you know, I'm not even sure you were ready to say that an hour and a half ago. Like yeah. you sort of had to come to this this uh, really pithy formulation. And I'm glad we got it out there before the interview was over. So let let's go on then. Like what what's to be done? What what's next? You you gave us a really great formulation there. Um, so given that the Democratic Party cannot be transformed and wielded as a way of cohering the, you know, the working class into a class in and for itself, so to speak, um, what's to be done? What is our relationship? There, I mean, there are a lot of these are not theoretical questions. There are a lot of live debates. For example, there was a there was a proposal that went forward uh, on the, the uh, Democratic Socialists of America convention this past summer as to whether or not the DSA should affiliate in any way, shape, or form with a Democratic Party. Whether or not, you know, this would this would have, to my understanding, I think, uh, you know, basically prevented any DSA chapter from endorsing someone who is running on the Democratic Party platform, I do believe. And even if that wasn't the proposal, there are people out there who are talking in that way, right? Uh, having a very, uh, you know, exclusionary kind of... Um, black and white relationship with the Democrats. And so how do you envision that relationship taking place and, and what's a principled socialist left to do? Hmm, yeah. yeah. Well, it's the big question, huh? Yeah, um, it is. It's a big one. Well, you know, the Democratic Party uh, is not our friend. Uh, and I don't think we have to pretend that it is, uh, that it is our party or that it will ever be our party. You know, I mean, th- this, this speaks to the fundamental ambiguity of American parties are are they are they private partisan organizations or are they are they public entities in in which everyone should be able to participate? I mean that's that's what people started asking a hundred years ago when they introduced primaries as a way. Of, I mean no other hmm. no other country uses primaries to nominate hmm. somebody. You would let the public make a decision for the party, right? That's not clear that that should be the case. Um, hmm. I think we should think about them as somewhere in the middle that they're almost quasi-state organs. And we should exploit them in every possible opportunity that we can. We, what we have to be sober about is what we should reasonably expect to get from a party. I see. And I am, I mean, I would be the first person to endorse and support the building of a third party, a truly working class mass membership party uh, that would actually be charged with transforming workers into a class in the way that we talked about. Um, I don't see that on the agenda anywhere in the future, um, Mm. at least in the foreseeable future. So if the party can't build the class, then we have to come up with other kinds of organizations that can build the class. And then, you know, not not as its only mission, but as an important component of building the strength of the left, uh, that independent working class organization has to be able to put pressure on Democrats because there are things we need from the state. 
How are we supposed to organize the working class if people are working 40, 50 or more hours a week? They don't have time to be political activists. They don't have time to associate with members of their neighborhood and their workplace and, and develop their capacities as individuals and as collectivities to, to think and do politics. So we need, we need policy changes. I mean, it, it sounds a little wonkish, but that, that's part of the political struggle. So there are things we need from the state. And, uh, and without uh, our own vehicle, without our party, then we've got to use what is, was it, what is at hand. We should not have illusions that we can transform this thing into being our party. It won't mm -hmm. be our party. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, uh, it, the, 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 uh, both uh, American political parties have major problems when it comes to stopping insurgencies. You know, I mean, Donna Brazil suggests, okay, well, uh, this thing was rigged. Yeah, right. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. Was the, pri was the primary uh, rigged? Was the Democratic Party uh, primary rigged? Uh, as far as what I can tell from the evidence that she is presenting, what she means by rigged is that Clinton had domination of, of the DNC and was actually had come up with a very creative form of money laundering and had a financial advantage. I could, I could have told you that that was true before the campaign even started, hmm. uh, before the primary process even started, that a partisan organization was not going to be a fair fight between the standard bearer of the establishment and an independent socialist senator <laughs> is almost true by definition. Yeah. Uh, that the DNC staff were going to be totally hostile to Sanders and do whatever they could to, to bend the campaign in Clinton's favor, they were going to do. You'd have to be totally enamored in, ideolo in the ideology of the Democratic Party as this allegedly neutral space that's, you know, representative of all comers and, uh, you know, it's open and infinitely open in a democratic direction, right? Like you'd have to be really enamored in that ideology to believe for a second that, that the Clintonian wing would be, would stand on equal footing with the Sanders yeah. uh, wing, you know? Yeah. Of course, of course. Yeah. And, uh, that Clinton had advantages, uh, I think it, it goes without saying, but if by rigged people, are suggesting that ballots were miscounted or rules were changed at the 11th hour, hmm. um, then I think they're wrong. I, the rules put in place for how states decide who can participate in primaries um, were put in place two years earlier. I mean, those were rules from 2014, and those rules had just been adopted with minor revisions from 2012. So those rules were set in place. I mean, what we should be objecting to is maybe still the capacity of some state parties to have closed primaries and others to have open, because that hugely affected how well Sanders could do. Um, but that goes back to party federalism. The decentralized nature of this party is, is those states get to decide how they run their own primaries. Uh, there isn't one national set of rules. Um, so I think, I think even though the the field is tilted against insurgents, which <laughs> is true by definition, if that word means what I think it means. If you are an insurgent, <laughs> right. you are a hostile force in, in, in a foreign land. You will be uh, perceived as such, right? Yeah. It, you will be perceived as such. You will be treated as such. <laughs> yeah, and as yeah. far as I know, um, there were no actual procedural shenanigans other than scheduling debates on, you know, weeknights where, where 
Monday Night Football was on or on the weekend or something like that, mm. which obviously is shady. But I mean, it's a shady organization. It doesn't want a socialist independent right. senator t to win. Um, but he actually, but he actually almost did. He, he actually almost, did. almost yeah. did. To say that Debbie Wasserman Schultz, I mean, I think this is my takeaway from 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 what I've learned. I think most from you to today. To say that Debbie Wasserman Schultz is shady. Um. I mean, it's kind of fundamentally true. She's awful. She's 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 terrible. I'm not defending her, but what I mean is to say to say that her actions were shady is to fundamentally misrecognize like the normative uh, state of the De Democratic Party, mm -hmm. because the assumption there is that Debbie Wasserman Schultz is doing something that exists outside of the institutional frameworks and the norms that exist that are the Democratic, you know, that represent the Democratic Party. And what your argument is, is actually no. Debbie Wasserman Schultz kind of was the Democratic Party when she was the head of the DNC. There's, there's a real personification of power. There's, a, there's a, the decentralization of the states. I mean, we can talk about what ought to be, what would be a more just arrangement. But to suppose that Wasserman Schultz was in some way, you know, putting her finger on, a, on an otherwise fair scale just fundamentally rep misrepresents, you know, what the party is. Do, do you think I have that right? I mean, that sounds, I mean, I think that's good then, right? Because there is no scale. There is no scale of justice for Wasserman Schultz to put her finger on. Yeah. Right? I mean, the party elites kind of, they are the scale. Yeah, I, I, I think that's closer to the truth. Um, I think that's closer to the truth. And okay. remember, we're talking about the actual pinnacle of the party. I mean, this is the most... Um, ripe fruit on the party tree that that the left was trying to pluck away from uh, what was a, a, supposed to be just a straightforward coronation of the standard bearer. Mm -hmm. um, the success of of the left running insurgencies at subnational levels, which of course also have primaries, um, could be infinitely more successful. Right? These are not right. things that that you would have a whole network of party elites mobilizing against either in terms of endorsements or money. Um, and, I, and I think that's basically how Sanders sees this in the Our Revolution uh, organization that has been his post-campaign successor, is I think they fundamentally understand that when they talk about transforming the party, and they use that language just like the New Politics Movement used to, they don't mean revamping its institutional structure, which, which I think is a good idea, because I think that, that gets us off on the wrong path. They simply mean of this structure is permeable, and if we put the right people in office, yes, we're not going to get socialism from that. It's not going to build the collective capacities of the working class, but we'll be able to shift the political agenda in a fruitful way. As you write in your article, for one key example of that, is like up to half of local offices, local uh, Democratic Party offices, are vacant. Um, so it's, it's simply not the case that this is a bureaucratic structure that's impossible to get into and operate inside of. It's the case that there's a, just an overall lack of enthusiasm about participating in, in local and state Democratic Party structures simply because there really isn't any uh, you know feeling that you can really make much of a difference one way or the other. Right. Um, so, so it's, it's this, uh, what do you call that? One of your sections is titled the, or something really hmm. uh, good that I, openness without entry. Right. Openness without entry. That's the, it's, it's the paradox of democratic party organization. 
that's brilliant. I like that a lot. You, you, you point to a couple really key paradoxes and, and plays on words in this socialist register piece. And that's, I think that's one of my favorite it's openness without entry. And so sure half of the party. So we'll see to my point is we'll see to what extent our revolution is successful. I think both you and I are, are, are skeptical, although, you know, any way that we can expose, uh, these a-holes inside the DNC, you know, the Tom Perez's of the world, uh, the better, I think. I think we're better off, expo- you know, shining as much sunlight as we can on these folks. Yeah, and I think to expose I, them. I think the way in which we could, uh, as we were talking a little bit um, when we were off air, I think the way to understand, to circle all the way back to to the Brazil revelations, is that as you as you put it, I think uh, the story is the story. Right. Right. Uh, what is, what is, I mean, between Donna Brazil, Tulsi Gabbard, uh, Stanley Greenberg, who did a, a, an interesting interview with uh, The New Yorker, um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Sanders, and, and many of his, uh, his uh, other surrogates and their. Well, ex- hell, the, sh- the book Shattered, the whole Shattered book, yeah. you know, the tell all expose on the Clinton campaign sort of told the same story as well. Yeah. Right. I mean, the reason we are litigating and relitigating. The primaries and 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 trying to divine their meaning is because the future of the Democratic Party is entirely unclear, and no one has hegemonic control of this over this process anymore. Uh, right? I mean, you have party elites w- turning away from Clinton because they think she's toxic. Um, uh, that's probably an accurate observation, but no one has emerged as as the successor, and and time will tell as to who that is, but more fundamentally, it is up in the air just what this party is going to stand for in the era yeah. of Trump, right. uh, which direction it's, it's going to go. And, and, and I think it's mostly a false dichotomy when people say, well, this is, it's either going to stress economic issues and go for the white working class, or it's going to retain issues of, of identity and, mm-hmm. and millennial issues. I, th- I don't think those are the options. And I think it's really important that, that for all the limitations of engaging with the Democratic Party, and we should be sober about those, I, I think the, the Brazil re- revelations expose that this, this war is, taking very, very, is being taken very seriously. And the mainstream, moderate, neoliberal party elites uh, do not have control over this, over this process any longer. Right, right. When I see, you know, when you say the story is the story, it's not that Donna Brazil said anything that no, that, that we didn't necessarily know. I mean, uh, I think there was a piece that came out. Uh, it was either on the Hill or Politico or something. Else. Maybe it was the Hill. I can't remember where it came out, but basically, you know, uh, it went through the whole line by line of Brazil's accusations in this, you know, in this the selection from her book. You know, he said actually, well, the Bernie Sanders campaign had a similar fundraising agreement. It's just that they, they they signed it, but they chose not to go in that direction. They, they decided to opt for small donors. And so, yeah, I mean, maybe the Sanders campaign didn't know to what extent the Clinton uh, campaign was was given control because of those financial contributions. But they were offered the, the Sanders wing was offered the same deal. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not as though they didn't know the deal existed. So the point is to say. I'm not this does not absolve any of the shenanigans right on the DNC like I don't know if it was up to me I'd burn it down to the you know burn it to the ground and start over fresh right metaphorically speaking because you say as you say I'm not even sure what you would burn right like <laughs> what is there to burn who knows uh, in any case the revelation is that 
there was a revelation and that this is deemed to be a story by someone as high up in the, on the rungs of the, of the Democratic Party ladder as Donna Brazile to now come out against it and to say that, look, what we all knew to be true for the last year, this matters. And I'm going to make it I'm, I'm going to make it matter. Right. So the story is the story. Yeah. I think, you know, where it goes from here, uh, you know, it, it really we don't know. And I think I think we all need to be ready for this. And so let's talk, you know, one last thing. God, you've raised so many things I wish we would have talked about. We could have talked for hours about this whole thing about like this BS about the so-called white working class versus identity, so-called identity politics and all of the misdirection involved in that faux debate. Um, but just let's close with tell us why we have to why are we still relitigating the primary? Are we stuck here? I mean, why is it that we seem to be just living in the past and why can't we move forward in a more positive direction? And maybe even make an argument, I think, that you might you might have an interesting take on this as to why actually maybe relitigating the primary is what we should be doing right now. <laughs> maybe, you know, I'm going to be provocative here. A lot of people will probably hate me for saying that. Well, I, I think it does come down to that, that the party is standing at a crossroads. Um, the current strategy... Uh, being employed uh, by the party leadership, uh, um, particularly the party in government, um, so uh, uh, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, um, and and many others, is to simply take an anti-Trump position, hmm. is use the catastrophe and the horror show that is the Trump administration to paper over the differences that opened up between Clinton and Sanders in the uh, those wings of the party in the 2016 nomination race. Um, to not address it, to not reopen those wounds, but to simply try and move forward, right? That's the phrase that you hear most often. Simply move forward without addressing it, yeah. hoping that those problems will go away and that by 2020, a candidate will emerge who somehow can simply magically bridge that divide in a way to, to suppress internal party conflict, right? They're just going along to get along, uh, and, and that seems to be the status quo. Um, what we will have to see is whether that gains any traction in the 2018 midterm elections. Um, because if it doesn't, and the Republican, uh, the current configuration of the Republican coalition continues as is, despite all of Trump's bullshits and fuck ups and everything, then I think that strategy will will be open to serious challenge, in in which case the Sanders wing will be able again to press that actually coming out with ideologically committed candidates and and strong policy positions on universal universal uh, social services and uh, decommodification and so on. That that, that that may actually be able the way to back to democratic victory. Um, so right now, I think it's just this profound moment of, of, of a vacuum. And people continue to relitigate the primaries because there's a lot at stake in trying to understand what happened. Uh, after all, I mean, we do need to say it, Hillary Clinton came very, very close to winning. Uh, oh, yeah. if, if, yeah. only eight, if only 80,000 votes among the many, many millions of votes cast, if only 80,000 votes stretched across three states went a different way, then, then, I mean, we would all just say, well, we all knew 
that she was going to win, right? It would have been just yeah. business as, as usual. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and we already talked about, I think, the effects that would have had on, on the uh, Sanders movement. You can fit 80,000 people into a typical college uh, football stadium uh, exactly. in the United States uh, for those. In, in, a, in a small uh, soccer uh, football stadium in Europe, if you will. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so, yeah. so the Clinton people have a basis. It's slim, in my opinion. But they have a basis from which to argue, look, nothing is wrong. There is no need to panic. We didn't do anything wrong. We came really, really close. But hey, you know, sometimes you come that close and you fall short, right? If she had been wiped out, which almost never happens these days, but if she had been wiped out, I mean, there would be no question that everything about the Clintonian third way is garbage. Yeah. A la McGovern. Exactly. Too, as, you, as we just highlighted. Yeah, yeah. So in this interregnum that we're in now, where it's unclear who's got control of the party, which way is the path back to victory, and both the Sanders wing and the Clinton wing having bases upon which they can argue that their way is the right way, then the primaries are going to continue to be relitigated. Well, all we have to do really is we can shut out the Democratic Party pundits and all the rest of them. We don't even have to listen to the Sanders, the Bernie Kratz, or those folks. Really, you need to turn to Tony Fabrizio, who uh, was uh, the Trump campaign's leading pollster, who, re- who said in an event this past Monday or last week at Harvard uh, University, that uh, Sanders uh, would have won, that Bernie uh, would have won in a head-to-head uh, election uh, against Donald Trump. So this is one of Trump's former staffers, head pollster, saying this. Now, whether or not that's true, we have reason to believe that that may or may not be true. Uh, the consensus is shifting, but we have uh, Trump's former pollster saying Bernie would have won, We have Donna Brazil, former uh, DNC chair, interim chair, coming out against the Clinton wing. So things are definitely in flux. And um, I'll give you the last word, but I think really what I've what I've want what I've tried to do here, and I think we've done this really successfully, is transcend the simplistic black and white, yay or nay, good or bad kind of analysis of the Democratic Party that we have on the left. And just to take it seriously, I'm just trying to encourage socialists to take the demachinations that go on in and around the Democratic Party seriously. And, and this is really the basis of your academic work. And so give us a final pitch as to why, even though the Democratic Party is not going to be the vessel of our liberation, despite that, why should, why should socialists take the Democratic Party seriously? Well, I think we should take it seriously because it is what we've got on hand right now. Um, And I mean, under ideal conditions, we would have our own kind of party. Um, But socialists don't get to make their history uh, under conditions that they get to choose. Uh, We have to work with what we've got um, in the short term and in the medium term. And, uh, you know, that's not the end of the story. It's not that we have to complacently just accept that the Democratic Party is the end-all be-all, but if we are able to build the class and, and organize working-class power, left-wing power, however we understand that, in ways that can effectively exploit the Democratic Party when it is exploitable and when it is worth us throwing our efforts and energies and resources into it, 
that is also the way to start building up the constituency that, as we mentioned before, would be the basis for a working class third party. Hmm. Right. That the right, that right. this isn't this is especially not an either or kind of scenario, because the way in which the left could build its own power to manipulate the Democratic Party in ways that help the left and help working class people is also the same path by which we could start building class capacities to a point where we could feasibly launch a third party that would probably, without a change of other kind of electoral institutions, end up displacing one of the existing parties. I mean, that's a big, big long-term project, um, but it's, 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 not a, it's not an either or uh, decision. I think, I think the path to, to exerting pressure of an independent political organization on the Democratic Party is the same pathway to building the party that we actually need. Well, there you have it. That's a very spirited and rigorous defense of building a movement outside of the party that will impact all of the political forces in society. Uh, we'll, we'll, take them, we'll take them along with us and we'll do it our way. Uh, but of course, what happens in and around the battles of the Democratic Party are incredibly important, as we have seen in the past two years. So thanks, Adam Hilton. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for doing the A side. Thanks for sticking around for the B side. You know, God, as always, there's like four or five other topics I wish we could have gotten to. I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of crap from my amazing, intelligent listeners. Got the smartest listeners around, folks. Uh, God, my Trump act, my Trump impression sucks. Could use a little work, but it's, uh, that's God. okay. Anyway, uh, thanks for joining us, man. Uh, apologies to my listeners. You know, a lot of topics that we didn't get to. Just, just to, just, just to say that we did it before we 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 part ways here. Uh, let's uh, do the customary denunciation uh, of the Democratic Party as a vessel of socialist transformation. Okay, I'll, I'll go first. Uh, I, Adam Proctor, do not believe that the Democratic Party is uh, the vessel of uh, socialist transformation, and I denounce it. Okay, your turn. Okay, I, Adam Hilton, do not yeah. believe the Democratic Party is a vehicle for socialist transformation. There you go. Take it, haters. Take that, haters. You can't accuse us of that. That's for sure. Although they'll do it anyway. You know they're going to do it anyway. Oh, yeah. That's, that's fine. That's normal. <laughs> you can handle it. You're smart enough. I'm a little sensitive. You know, I got a sensitive side. I, this criticism really gets me. It gets me deep. <laughs> Any case, man, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, well, we'd like to have you back again to talk about some of these things as they unravel. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of... Uh, you know, a lot of change uh, coming down the pike for the Democratic Party, that's for sure. Sure, anytime, Adam. Thanks very much. Thanks again, patrons, for all that you do for the show, for your financial support, for your emotional support, your spiritual support, and all that you do for the show. You really keep this thing going. And uh, if you ever feel like you're not appreciated, think twice, folks, because this podcast is a lot of work and I wouldn't be able to do it without you. So I really appreciate it. Thanks again. Love you all. Dead Pundit out.